It started COP26, the great bonanza in Glasgow that is due to last for two weeks. Over 25,000 delegates have arrived in Glasgow, although some have been delayed by train difficulties. And it's begun. Well, let's look at the lighter side to begin with, shall we? Uh, Prince Charles, of course, there yesterday and today. Perhaps he'll be there for the whole two weeks. I don't know. Uh, Prince Charles not getting off to the best of starts today um, as he walked up to the stage. And uh, he managed to stumble. Let's have a look at Prince Charles's grand entrance to the stage of COP26. Here we go. Here we go. His big moment. And oh dear. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Well, I've got to tell you, that's not the last time that Prince Charles will trip over if he wants to get directly involved in politics. Uh, but that's perhaps a separate issue. We then had Joe Biden, Sleepy Joe, who really, really struggled in the early part of the afternoon. Um, Sleepy Joe, because he does tend to fall asleep pretty easily. Have a look. There he is. Ah, bless him. Bless him. Quite how he's leader of the free world is completely and utterly beyond me. But you know what? For once, Joe Biden, I've got sympathy with you because when Prince Charles speaks, I feel like falling asleep also. It was described by journalist Jim Waterson in a tweet earlier on today. He said it was like being in an aircraft hangar. There was lots and lots of security and face masks have become mandatory. Guards walking around without face masks, telling people they had to put their face masks on. And indeed, a range of vegetarian sandwiches. There we are. How wonderful for everybody. But on a more serious level, uh, the alarmism today, it's as if there's actually a competition going on. Who can scare people the most? I guess during the pandemic, many world leaders have had some practice at this. But let's begin by seeing what Prince Charles said once he'd finally got to that podium. My plea today is for countries to come together to create the environment that enables every sector of industry to take the action required. We know this will take trillions, not billions of dollars. We also know that countries, many of whom are burdened by growing levels of debt, simply cannot afford to go green. Here we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector. With trillions at its disposal, far beyond global GDP, and with the greatest respect, beyond even the governments of the world's leaders, it offers the only real prospect of achieving fundamental economic transition. It's now or never. Mind you, the UN and he have been saying that since 1989. And then the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, not to be outdone, said that unless we acted here in Glasgow, we'll be talked about in the future in far stronger terms than we speak today of politicians who ignored what was happening in Nazi Germany, because this will kill people all around the world for generations. Extraordinarily bad taste, I thought. Um, he did subsequently apologise it. But the most important speaker today was, of course, Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Now, this is quite some journey, because back in 2013, he said, how can man have such conceit to believe that we alone will alter the future climate of the world when there are factors such as 
the sun. Uh, interestingly, even in 2015, he was saying it's a warm December, but I don't think it's got anything to do with global warming. And he even in those days was quoting Piers Corbyn, who's always been a global warming sceptic. Now, of course, people are allowed to change their minds. So let's see the main points that Boris Johnson had to make today. The longer we fail to act, the worse it gets, and the higher the price when we are eventually forced by catastrophe to act, because humanity has long since run down the clock on climate change. It's one minute to midnight on that doomsday clock, and we need to act now. If we don't get serious about climate change today, it will be too late for our children to do so tomorrow. The son is almost certainly a man called James Bond, who generally comes to the climax of his highly lucrative films strapped to a doomsday device, desperately trying to work out which coloured wire to pull to turn it off, while a red digital clock ticks down remorselessly to a detonation that will end human life as we know it. And we are in roughly the same position. Two degrees more and we jeopardise the food supply for hundreds of millions of people as crops wither, locusts swarm. Three degrees and you can add more wildfires and cyclones, twice as many, five times as many droughts and 36 times as many heat waves. Four degrees and we say goodbye to whole cities. Well, there you are. Not just a convert, but now genuinely an Old Testament prophet telling us that unless we act within these next two weeks in Glasgow, plagues of locusts will descend upon us. And the question I want to ask you to engage in tonight is, is this level of alarmism reasonable? And I think it must be over the top by anyone's definition. Is it any wonder that people are gluing themselves to motorways or that slightly disturbed and upsetting, upset-looking teenagers from Scandinavia are given this platform. Uh, people are being fed this constant diet of disaster. And I would like to hear, actually, some positivity about the good things we can do in the world. I suspect there'll be precious little of it in COP26 over the next few weeks. Let me know what you think. Is this level of alarmism unreasonable? GBviews at gbnews.uk, or you can tweet at gbnews. And remember... Barrage the Farage comes at the end of this programme. You can send me any question you want, well, within reason, um, and I will read it out live on air, having not seen it before, at the end of the show. Well, let's get to Glasgow and talk to GB News's political editor, Darren McCaffrey. Darren, good evening. Hello, Nigel. Now, I notice you're wearing a black tie, Darren. On today? <laughs> Indeed, you're right. I mean, you're right in saying... Uh, that there's been an awful lot of doom and gloom uh, today. Uh, Boris Johnson, in many ways, uh, has actually been ramping up the doom and gloom. And I did put this to him in Rome when I questioned him, saying that previously he had attacked people who were doomsters and gloomsters. Uh, and now why was he doing it when it came to climate change? And he said it was a fair cop question. His response to that, Nigel, is that when he be first became prime minister, he got the scientists into number 10 and he talked them through specifically what would happen, which he's just done with the audience there. Uh, if and when the temperature ratcheted up over the next century and what that could mean, and that he has had a road to Damascus moment when it comes uh, to climate change. 
But you're right also in saying that he's pretty gloomy about the prospects of a deal here in Glasgow, as is almost everyone. And as you remember, getting a deal here in Glasgow is not about reaching some great new kind of threshold. It's about trying to keep the deal that was signed in Paris six years ago alive, and that is trying to cap global temperatures to 1.5 degrees. Is it possible? Well, I'm not entirely sure when you've got Narendra Modi, the Indian Prime Minister today, saying that his country wouldn't be going carbon neutral until 2070. That's a whole 20 years later than the UN wants the world to be there. And of course, at least he is here, unlike the leaders of China, Russia, Brazil and Turkey, some of the world's biggest carbon polluters. Yeah, well, Darren, it's going to be very interesting and a very long fortnight for you there in Glasgow. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. And look, I just think this level of alarmism is unreasonable. I want to hear more positives. But joining me now is somebody who may take a different view to me. It's Laurie Laybourne Langton, uh, a climate change researcher and equally author of Planet on Fire. Laurie, uh, you've heard what, uh, what's been said today, um, perhaps an error of taste from the Archbishop of Canterbury, but basically... Uh, and we have been hearing it from the UN since 1989, that unless we act, it's all over, it's doomsday, it's disaster. Uh, is that message a reasonable one to put out? The, the message that things will get worse and present a massive threat to the stability of societies around the world is an absolutely legitimate thing to, to say. Now, different people have handled that over time, but we have now reached the point, as many others not just the ones that you were talking about there have warned about, where we've allowed emissions to continue to rise. Temperatures have then gone up exactly as the scientists were predicting would happen. And then that has led to loads of quite severe impacts that were also predicted to happen, like hotter weather, like more weather, other weather extremes like storms. And they have had a knock-on effect in eroding the ability for some countries to produce enough food, in hitting development indicators across Africa and so on. So this really is the crunch time that we're living through at the moment. It's not one where, you know, we'll fall off the edge of a cliff tomorrow and the world will end or something. Oh, but it, oh, but it, it we really like that, Laurie, doesn't it? It does sound like that today. Well, I don't think anyone has said the world could end in the next few years. It may sound like it. We may hear this mm. sort of thunderous prose from a lot of world leaders. But we are really in the grips of a global problem that if we don't get on top of right now, will lead to very horrendous things very quickly. Um, some of them, like the locust thing that you mentioned there, are yeah. already happening and could become more extreme as time goes on very, in the very near future. Boris Johnson said a few years ago that it was a conceit for man to think that all change in our climate was down to man's activity because there are other factors. And you and I both well know whether that's sunspot activity or volcanic activity. Yet today he says that all changes to climate are down to man. Is it not fair and reasonable, Laurie, to say that there are other factors than man that affect whether temperatures go up or down in the world, as has happened uh, since, since the beginning of time? It's, it's what level those factors play in leading to the temperature rise that we're seeing, right? So, yeah, there's loads of things, some of which you mentioned there, that might have an impact on how the climate works. Might. But the report that might, might yeah. have, yeah, well, at any given time. But we, we have got an emphatic answer on this, on this issue that, was, uh, that we got from the international scientific community earlier on this year, right? From the UN science body, the, inter the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that, that gives us the, the boilerplate science, right? 
And in that report, there is a graph that, that isolates out the individual elements. And the human element in this case is the absolutely dominant one. So we know without any doubt that it is humans that are leading to the increase in temperature we've already seen, which is then leading to all these increasingly grim effects. OK, Laurie Laybourne-Langton, thank you for coming on GB News and very clearly putting your view. And that's the point of this channel, isn't it? We don't agree, we disagree. I question, actually, that that panel, uh, because it was actually set up to prove that climate change was happening and their graphs in the past have been wrong. But you've heard both sides of the argument. Please give me your views, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Now, fishing. The French are behaving wholly unreasonably. Not only in demanding that fishing boats that show no historic record of fishing in British waters, because they're not getting licences, they're threatening all sorts. They're threatening to increase the price of electricity to Jersey. They've even threatened to cut off the electricity to Jersey. Uh, they are threatening uh, all sorts of sanctions and problems at various ports in France with British goods. Who knows, maybe Monsieur Macron, little Napoleon, wants to even threaten the British Christmas. I don't know. What I do know is this. Two things are very clearly highlighted for me. The first is what a rotten deal the fishing part of the Brexit withdrawal agreement was. Absolutely rotten. Over 100 French boats are allowed to fish up to the six-mile line in this country, and they're doing so particularly in the Eastern Channel, in a very, very environmentally damaging and degrading way. Oh, well, what's our access to inside the 12-mile French limit? Well, nothing. Fewer than a handful of British boats can do the same. So it's a rotten deal for the British industry. It's a rotten deal for our marine environment. But it is a deal, and it is actually a treaty, between us and the European Union. And clearly the French want to ride roughshod over all of that. Interesting, isn't it? That if the French boats have no historic records of fishing in British waters, they were clearly fishing illegally if they claimed they were there at the time because of the existence of logbooks. What are we to do about all of this? Well, Liz Truss has spoken pretty firmly. You know, she said we won't roll over, that the French are being unreasonable, and we will seek, if, if they take some of the actions they threaten, we'll seek compensatory measures. I've got a better idea. Did you know we're still paying billions to the EU? This year, we'll pay seven billion to the EU. Next year, we'll pay five billion to the EU. Our deal, the deal upon which we left, was with the EU, not with France. And there's the graph, and that comes from the House of Commons Library. So we're still paying very large sums to Europe as part, or European Union, as part of our divorce settlement. Not something I would ever have agreed to, but that's what happened, and that's what actually, in the end, with a very tired public, won a big majority at a general election. And yet, the EU will crack down on Poland or crack down on Hungary if they don't like what they're doing, but France apparently can do what they like. My suggestion is we withhold all payments to the European Union until the French withdraw their threats. And I think that is a proportionate and a reasonable response, and one that might actually work and work quite quickly. Well, let's debate all of that. Joining me here in the studio is Dennis McShane, former Minister for Europe and former Labour MP. Also joining us is Andrew Oliver, a marine law expert at Andrew Jackson Solicitors, and Barry Dees, Chief Executive at the National Federation of Fishermen's Organisations. Barry, let's start with you. The French are being wholly unreasonable, are they not? 
Well, I think it's very difficult to explain what's happening at the moment um, in, in fishing terms alone. Um, this seems to have more to do with the electoral cycle in, in, in France than, than, than the fishing issue. I mean, Brexit has been a, a disaster for, for most of um, uh, the British fishing industry. Um, m m most fishermen have are facing reduced fishing opportunities this year compared to when we were in the EU. Um, and uh, trade, of course, is, is automatically uh, more difficult. Um, and, and now we have, um, uh, as, in addition to restrictions in trade, we've got these threats coming from the EU. I completely agree that you know, the, these are unreasonable, uh, belligerent noises coming from France, nothing to do really with fishing. If it wasn't uh, fishing, it would be something else, in, in, in my view. Um, the, the, the problem is that this is going to cause a lot of harm. If those threats are acted on, it's going to cause harm to our vessels, our members, but I think also uh, the French, the French fishing industry. Uh, it's interesting that there are noises coming out, particularly from uh, Boulogne-sur-Mer, uh, that they're extremely worried that uh, the, the, the supply chain will be cut. There are many businesses on both sides of the yeah. Uh, the channel that depend on this trade to, to for their businesses to survive. So yeah, uh, yeah, Barry, I was talking time to de-escalate. I think I was talking to somebody in Boulogne on Friday who made the point they import lots of salmon from the UK, and without that, their business is in trouble. What would you like to see happen, Barry? I think this needs to be put back in its box, which is a, a relatively minor technical issue uh, and, and dealt with at, at that level. Take the politics out of it because it's not doing us any good. Well, if we could, uh, that would be a good idea, but I do suspect your first answer was the right one. This is to do with other factors, <coughs> such as the French presidential elections coming up next year and his loathing of Brexit. Well, let's next ask Dennis McShane. Dennis... Uh, Macron hates Brexit. I mean, he's one of the biggest believers in the European Union that we've seen from a European uh, leader in recent years. Um, but let's be honest, you know, I don't like the withdrawal agreement. I'm sure you don't like it much either. But we have actually played this with a straight bat so far, and they're behaving terribly, aren't they? The withdrawal agreement was a disaster, not just for British fishermen, as fishing communities, as Barry said, but so many other small and medium-sized enterprises. But it is... What people said they voted for, the fishing community was very powerful in arguing to quit the European Union. Yes. But the good news tonight is, I can smell, I'm an old politician, I can smell something you've never liked, Nigel, entirely to your honour, and that's called compromise. Oh, a sellout, you mean? A compromise. Appeasing Macron, and that's what you mean, no, isn't it? No, 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 <laughs> on the contrary, the, um, Mr. Well, it's technically the town councillors in Jersey, uh, but it obviously it's come from the government, have, have issued 49 new licences. They already said they'd issued them before, but now they're going to be applied instantly. Temporary licences. Well, everything's temporary. French have a wonderful phrase that the only thing that lasts forever is the provisional. So, very sensibly, HMG is saying, calm this down. Secondly, we're agreeing to negotiate under the auspices or chairmanship of the European Union with the French to try and find a solution. Because I do agree very, very much with Barry. The wording of this, I've got so many technical things I can tell you, we haven't got time, was atrocious. 
very badly worded. You've got a nice guy called David Frost. He worked for me. I liked him very much. He wouldn't know one end of a fish from another. And he was in charge of producing a deal, signed last December, that absolutely sold out the British fishing industry. Now, games are being played. I mean, there's elections are at stake. Boris Johnson in May threatened to send in the Royal Navy to hit French fishing boats got well, huge to, well, headlights. Well, to defend Jersey's interests. And, and Dennis, let's be fair, the sellout of the fishing industry started back in the 1970s. EU, I agree, membership, I agree. EU membership was bad for no, British fishing. The EC membership. I agree, but why was Mr Johnson doing that in May? He had an election to win in Hartlepool. He had giant city elections to win in Manchester and Birmingham, Liverpool and the rest of it. I've got a little map here. I don't know if it can appear... Uh, on screen, so it's only a Google map. That's all right. Here you've got the, 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 the Channel Islands fishing area. They're called the yeah. Ile Normande in French, Normandy Islands. As you can see, they're a long way away from England. Uh, imagine that the Isle ma- of Wight. That matters no, not. That's no, but irrelevant. Imagine, all right, all right, all right. You and I were there at the history when all this started. Imagine if the Isle of Wight uh, was French. It's not. Uh, but we've got... Scores of small French family fishing boats, not giant trawlers that go out into the Atlantic and catch our cod, mainly owned by foreigners now. Uh, Now, there's been an absolute problem with people playing games, I think, all around the park. I'm not excusing the French. I certainly think Mr Johnson needs a constant (coughs) fight over Brexit or Brexit that to keep his political base happy. He wants you to support him, Nigel. Dennis, I'd love to support him. And, of course, I believe in Brexit. I I think there are too many French boats already inside our 6 to 12-mile limit, the environmental damage I've seen myself. I don't like it. Um, Andrew Oliver, marine law specialist. It seems to me we could just give in. And, and, And Dennis Michel may be right... We may once again, you know, allow a lot of boats into our waters who've got no historic records and therefore clearly were fishing illegally. Um, I've suggested withholding funds from the European Union budget. How do you see all of this from a legal perspective, given that there was, not that I liked it, a treaty between us and the European Union? Well, asking for a track record to gain access to, to waters is absolutely a standard fisheries management tool. It's a management tool that we've used for years and years. And in my view, the French are, are being asked to do nothing more than, than the UK fishermen are, are asked to do on a regular basis. I, As a fishery lawyer, I've got a pro- probably about six clients at the moment, UK fishermen who are being asked to provide some form of track record to allow them to access either a bass fishery or a scallop fishery. Mm-hmm. So this principle of, of a track record and demonstrating that you fished in a particular area is absolutely standard. And therefore, there is, you know, in some respects, I, I don't see what all the fuss is about. And I suspect Barry, in many respects, as a fisheries expert as well, will, will say, well, this is, you know, standard stuff. It happens bread and butter. You know, it happens every every day of the week coming across my desk. Um, some fishermen saying, well, you know, they won't let me in here. They won't give me a, a, a you know, rod license for bass uh, because I can't prove my track record. So the bottom line is the French are not being asked to do anything that um, is particularly unusual. I think the difficulty is that some of these vessels, especially fishing around uh, Jersey, are very small vessels. They maybe haven't got the sophisticated um, satellite um, equipment ah, and records. They, hang on, hang on, Andrew, but they have got logbooks because those have been around for a long time, yep. haven't they? So if they A- haven't absolutely. got logbook records, they're trying it on, aren't they? 
Well, quite possibly. I mean, my, my experience of fishermen in general is there will be those who can prove, you know, in these things, is yep. that those who can easily prove their, their historic rights, those that may have more difficulty because their record keeping is not as good as it, as it should be. Fishermen are fishermen, not bureaucrats and administrators. And there will, of course, be the odd carpet bagger who is trying to, yeah. to, to get in there and, and get a full of festival. Uh, well, there's a few um, of those. There's a few of those. Let me just show you all very quickly a clip. Um, this film was taken um, inside the British Six Mile Line. Um, here it is. This boat was inside the Six Mile Line off the southern Cornish coast on the 8th of October. You can very clearly see the name of the vessel. I've had to take the sound out because the British fishermen were... How can I put it? Urging the robust, French boat, robust. very robust, not to be uh, in our waters. And I'm going to send this clip. Um, this is going to go uh, to the Fisheries Minister, George Eustace, because if they're impounding our boats, it's about time we acted. Gentlemen, thank you all very much for joining me on this debate, and we'll come back to this at some point before long. In a moment, we'll talk about a, an election taking place in Virginia, USA tomorrow, for the state governor. It's a seat... The Democrats have held for years. The Republicans could just do it tomorrow. What's going on in US politics? Is the COP26 alarmism reasonable? A viewer on Twitter says, I wonder how many emissions there will be from the towels and bedding, washing and tumble drying, plus the cars and flights from all those at COP26, including 400 private jets that have arrived in Glasgow and Edinburgh. Paul on GB Views says it should be called Cop Out 26. Well, I think Flop 26 is more likely by the end of it all. Laura says the voters won't forget about all this at the ballot box. People didn't vote for this. A very firm point. And David says, I'm sick of hearing about how climate change will affect us. Boris and his locust story is beyond belief. Now, the Democrats have been in power, at least the president's been in power, since January. And yet things are going very, very wrong. A poll put out by NBC which asked which party better handles specific issues and the Republicans hold double-digit advantages on border security, indeed that one by 27 points, inflation by 24 points, crime, I mean, here it is, look at it, it's unbelievable. National security, the economy, getting things done. Um, the Biden presidency is in some trouble. Uh, the Kamala Harris vice presidency in some trouble. 71% of Americans in this NBC poll say that they believe that the country is headed in the wrong direction, up eight points since August. So there is a big level of disquiet. And into all of this, there is an election tomorrow in Virginia for the state governor. And Glenn uh, Youngkin is the Republican challenger. Terry McAuliffe has been for four years the governor of Virginia. And this has always been, you know, for a long, long time, a safe, a safe sorry, Democrat seat. And yet... Polls suggest that there is a real challenge now coming from the Republicans. Well, joining me all the way from New York is Hank Sheinkoff, a Democrat strategist who worked with Bill Clinton and Michael Bloomberg on their political campaigns. Very good to have you back on here with us uh, this evening. Um, something's not going very well, is it? Is it Biden that's bringing the whole party down? It's not just Biden. You know, Americans respond to the slightest bit of chaos by moving uh, to the right. Frankly, we've seen this before. Richard Nixon goes back to 68, if you think about it. 
um, Ronald Reagan uh, as a response to Iran, the Iran hostage situation. Again, things out of control. Whenever there's a sense that things are out of control, Americans respond and they do something that, you know, some incumbents might not like. And the other thing that's unusual here, very important to note, is the elections tomorrow, which is not even a by-election, are kind of the midterms for all intents and purposes. Very unusual. And a response to Biden's problems, which are he can't get that bill, that stimulus bill passed in the Congress. The left is making his life miserable, as is the right. COVID has come back a bit. Uh, The economy is not doing as well as it should. All of the things he thought that could be righted and the people thought could be righted, he has not been able to do. Is there not, Hank, also a question of competence? I mean, let's be frank. And I teased a bit earlier on in the show with him sort of closing his eyes Mm -hmm. at COP26. But does he look competent to run the country and to be leader of the free world? We've lost him. He's gone. Never mind. That was a shame. Um, Now, my What the Farage moment. This is quite something. This is quite something. Have a look at this picture. It comes from CNN. And there's Wolf Blitzer, one of their big stars. Now I'm reporting from Edinburgh in Scotland, where 20,000 world leaders and delegates have gathered for the COP26 climate summit. COP, by the way, stands for the Conference of the Parties. Well, there you are. Well done, CNN. You couldn't even get the city in Scotland right, so quite why we take anything you have to say seriously, I'm just not too sure. In a moment, joining me in the GB News pub on Talking Pints, Conservative Member of Parliament, Michael Fabricant. It's my favourite time of the day. The GB News pub is open and joining me in it tonight is Conservative Member of Parliament, Michael Fabricant. Michael, welcome. Thank you very much. To the GB News pub. I'm loving it, except for one thing. You, yes. You, you won't believe this. Go on. They got me a really nice bottle of Chianti. Yes. But it had a cork in it. And you know what? The pub doesn't have a corkscrew. I don't so I've had it. to go for this inferior bottle. <laughs> <laughs> this inferior I'm sure it'll be lovely. Well... We had previously Christopher Biggins complained about the lack of ice. <laughs> he said it was a rotten pub, but we now have an ice machine, so a corkscrew is coming. Cheers. Given <laughs> what we've been told today in Glasgow, that the world's going to end in catastrophe, we may as well have a drink, it seems mm. to me. If you've got to go... <laughs> go sloshed is my, uh, <laughs> is my great... Oh, it's very good, actually. Good. <laughs> what do you make of Boris today? I mean, the plagues of locust business... I, I mean, he's gone from being sceptical about all of this. I mean, he's now sort of... He, well, he really dad, is an Old Testament his prophet. dad is a big influence as well. Uh, you know, I mean, he really has been a campaigner for a long time on these mm. issues. Uh, I don't think I'm as sceptical as you are on this one, but, you know, I think we've got to do something well, I'm sceptical, Michael, I'm sceptical about what we're doing in the name of it. That's what I'm sceptical about. I'm sceptical about 
wind technology. I'm sceptical about the cost it yeah. puts on ordinary folk. That's where and I come indeed, from. And indeed, you know, the amount of pollution that comes in just producing an electric battery. Yeah. And at the moment, I'm hanging on to my electric, uh, onto my petrol car. Yes. Because the Israelis and the Americans are working on a new form of battery technology, which will be cleaner to manufacture. And you know what? It'll charge up in about six minutes from empty and go for 600 miles. That, to me, is a battery. No, if we... Uh, look, I'm all for this stuff if it works, but what I'm not for is this massive transference of money from the poor to the rich, and that's what's really got me down through all of this. Plus, I'm all for, uh, you know, in environmental measures. I mentioned fish stocks just yeah, a moment yeah. ago. Uh, you know, trees, carbon sequestration, nature, all of that. Michael, it's interesting. You've been in Parliament nearly 30 years, but... You're not the type that went to Oxford and did PPE and, and whilst you were always active in politics, you had a life before politics. Well, very much so. And I wasn't active in politics, actually, uh, really, until near the very end when I then did get to Parliament because my background was... I was at university, OK? I didn't do PPE, but no. I was at university. Yeah. Uh, several universities, and while I was there, I put together a radio consortium to run a commercial radio station in Sussex. And uh, I'd worked in the BBC before that and uh, pirate radio and uh, could be arrested if I go into too much... Pirate radio? That must have been fun. That was huge fun, <laughs> huge fun, but very, very dangerous if you wanted to stay out of prison. But you know what? A friend of mine went to court and was taken to court by the Home Office. And there was this trial. And the magistrate, I think it was a magistrate rather than a Crown Court thing, and the magistrate said, look, I, what I don't understand, but the Home Office can explain, what harm has the defendant actually done? He's played a few records. He's provided enjoyment for a lot of people. I'm dealing all the time with bag snatchers and all the rest of it. What harm has he done? Being a pirate radio, and he refers to his notes, disc jockey. <laughs> and that's the truth of it. But anyways, uh, so I think you were asking, how did I... Well, no what, I'm become... saying is, no, what I'm saying is this. I find it quite refreshing that we have MPs like you, who, and you worked as a school teacher for a bit. Only for an hour. Only for a year. An hour. An hour. A year. It's wine already. <laughs> but, you, but you did do that for a bit, but then you had this career in radio, this career in media... Um, and, and, and setting up radio stations around the world. And in fact, what well, sorry to interrupt you, no, go but on. that's what brought me into politics, actually, because I was doing uh, radio stations in 48 different countries around the world, which a lovely lady, who I'm going to quote now, Charlotte Owen from Number 10, said, well, that's about 25% of every country in the world. And I'd never thought of it like that before. And they had our radio stations, and it did two things for me. One is it made me a Eurosceptic. Did it? Because my company had to bribe to win contracts, not only in places when it was still legal to do that, and you had to do it, mm -hmm. otherwise it would have simply gone to the French, the Germans or the Americans who were all bribing. Not only in countries that you would expect to do it, third world developing countries, we had to do it to the ORTF in France, like the BBC. I mean, the only kosher... European countries were Holland and Scandinavia. There was mm. no bribery. And Belgium, actually. There was no and bribery. And cultures there similar to ours, actually. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And it was a joy. And this produced the Euroscepticism. It was a joy doing business in the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, 
and other countries which were English-speaking, had English law, were flexible and were incorruptible. Yeah. And that made me think, you know, because we're going ahead of myself, but when I was interviewed for the Litchfield Parliamentary Constituency, yeah. I was asked, well, all right, then, what one thing do you not agree with that the government believes in? And I said, well, the one thing is I think we'd be better off out of Europe. You were saying it all those years ago. All those years yeah. ago. So I was a Brexiteer before the word was invented. Yeah. But what got me to be an MP was two things. One is I had problems exporting to a particular country where the rival companies from other countries, those countries were offering all sorts of, not bribes, but maybe they were bribes in a mm. way. They were incentives like, we'll pay for your chief engineer to come for six months over to our country to learn, blah, blah, yeah. blah. So they were providing funding. And I went to our high commission uh, in Uganda, actually, it was, having said I wasn't going to say. And uh, they weren't interested in commerce in those days. And I wrote to my Member of Parliament, who was a marvellous man, the Right Honourable Sir Julian Amory. Oh, yes. Down in Brighton. Yes, yes, yes. And he contacted the Minister, and I went to see the Minister in the end. The Minister was a barrister. And I said, well, what the hell are you doing being in charge of uh, exports? When you're a barrister, you've never run anything in your life. None you're an that. advocate, but no. that's it. Well, yeah. that's my point, isn't it? Mm. That's my but point. he said to me, yeah, because people like you, Michael... Mm. who are obviously conservative, because we hadn't mm. even discussed politics, but who are obviously conservative, never become MPs. Mm. And then... And, and had you made some money doing all of that? I had made money doing it. And that helps I think as well. Helped. Well, yes. it means I'm not interested in other jobs. Some would say and, it's because I'm unemployable, but... And, <laughs> well, that's often a very good quality. <clears throat> but that means actually... The, I, mean, I mean, you know, you have held positions in the party, but you're basically happy being a backbencher, aren't you? Well, the problem I had, I had to resign in the end because uh, I've got a real problem with HS2, mm -hmm. which goes through my beautiful Litchfield constituency. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stop. Costs a fortune. And it's not even connected to I anything. Know, so, I, I mean, know. here's me, a big Eurosceptic. But and, the, I, and actually, the train service from Litchfield to London is pretty blooming good anyway. It is. It? Yeah. You've got to come up. You know, what is it, an hour and 15 minutes or something it's like that? If you go on the Pendolino, it's about yes. an hour and six minutes. Is it? Yeah. And if you go on the slow train, yeah. it's actually one hour 35 and it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. And it's direct. So that was a problem for you. So but that all, but, was a problem. But, but also, the, growth of, the, the rise of UKIP was becoming a problem for you, wasn't it? Well, this is right. And can we just get something on the record now? Yeah. And that is, this is the first time... David Cameron, if you're watching this, <laughs> I want you to make a note of this. And the chief whip at the time, make a note of this. This is the first time you and I have actually met. Properly, yeah. We, yeah. We, properly, yeah. yeah. We were at a dinner together yeah, once yeah. and we were looking yeah. at each other, yeah. but it's the first time we've yeah. properly yeah. met. Yeah. yeah, and what I said, I was in charge of running our by-elections at the time, which actually we used to win, and uh, I wrote a paper called The Pact. And in order to get publicity, because I got nowhere with number 10 over this, David Cameron, lovely guy, but he would go very pink in the face and get very angry as soon as I mentioned anything about this. So I thought, bugger it, we're going to get this now. He didn't like me very much. He did didn't he? like <laughs> He didn't like you at all. Because I will tell you... God, this sounds so creepy. But I will tell you, I said to him, Nigel Farage should be... 
knighted, at least. <laughs> Why? He has changed the face of the United Kingdom for the better. <laughs> and if it hadn't been for him, you know, we'd still be in the European Union. The wretched Anyway, idiot. he went very pink in the face about that as yeah, well. Like but that. the point of the whole thing was that I came up with this thing called The Pact, which yeah. got a lot of publicity at the time, and which said, basically, unless we have a pact with UKIP or do something else, because I never thought we would have a pact with UKIP, another yeah. party, that wouldn't happen, or do something else which like, did happen... Like offer a referendum. Like a referendum. Yes, yes. We'll never really get uh, a real government, because a lot of Conservatives feel very depressed yeah. about... But, but here's the funny thing, Michael. When you were talking about a pact, and a lot of the press were speculating around this as well. The irony of it all was, actually, in the 2015 general election, Cameron got the majority because of the number of Labour people that voted for this. And this, this was an issue that crossed, I think, left-right politics Absolutely. remarkably. And it's... Look, I've been moaning about fishing tonight, and with good reason, I can't stand the Northern Ireland thing, but it, but it is done. It's over. There's no going back. So what's the next big crusade for you? You're still there in Parliament. What's the next big thing that you want to really get involved in? Well, the big thing I'm involved with at the moment is the HS2 issue, yep. trying to mitigate... Uh, can, we still turn that, can we still top that, stop that well, on that? I, th I don't think it'll go ahead in its original form. My crusade, which I will never win, is to actually go back to the original plan for HS2. And you know what that would have been? That would have been that HS2 would have gone into the mainline stations, like yeah. Birmingham New Street, yeah. instead it's in a standalone station that it would link in with HS1, because although I'm a Eurosceptic, I'm a Europhile, i.e. I, like, the, I like Europe, I like yeah, the European Of course, countries. of course, well, I mean, all Eurosceptics do, yeah. in my experience. It's just the European yeah. Union. Yeah. And, of course, they're terrified, by the way. I mean, the whole fishing thing, if we can just go back to that for a moment, mm. is Macron is terrified. On April the 10th next year, he's got a general election, he is doing yeah. lousily in the polls, and those posters, Frexit, which I see all over, well, at least when I was travelling to France before Covid, you <laughs> see all over lampposts and everything, yeah. is a big, strong movement. That's why the Prime Minister yeah. of France said, can't have Britain being no. successful. Uh, next big thing, it, it'll be whatever, you know, comes along at the time. Yeah, well, I, I would love to see, though, you know, the original plan for HS2... You get on at Birmingham New Street or Manchester yep. Piccadilly, wake up in Well, you've Paris. got a big battle on now this. Now you've got to keep changing You've stations. got a big battle on this, and I'm with you completely on it. I think it's ridiculous to spend this amount of money, given where we are at this moment in time. One last quick thought. You were there for the budget last week. Was that a Conservative budget? It was a pragmatic budget. <laughs> there are times, you know, when, when you've got to be a little bit diplomatic. It was a pragmatic budget well, in are. difficult circumstances. Now, you can tell folks from a language Michael Fabricant is not leaving politics any time soon, but we thank him for coming in with us on Talking Pines. We're at the end of the show, and Michael's staying with me, because it's Barrage the Farage, where I do not see the questions before, I promise you. First up, Michael asks, is it true you voted for the Green Party in 1989? It is true. It was the European elections of 89, and the Green Party were led by a sensible fellow called Jonathan Porritt. I've always been an environmentalist, and I, and I, and I want to see a better, cleaner, greener world. Um, and I voted Green because they were the only Eurosceptic party back in those days, and I was pleased to do so. The chairman of my local Conservative Association almost collapsed in the pub that night when I told him. <laughs> a viewer on GB Views asks, is climate change just another project fear? It's a good point, that. Is it project fear? 
Or is there more it's to it than that? It's becoming that way. We've got to actually be constructive about this. Yes. We can make a greener, better, safer world. But terrifying people to do it yeah, isn't yeah, well, This is exactly it. what I think. Helen asks, what do you think Donald Trump would have said at COP26? <laughs> it would have been the most enormous fun. Um, look, he'd have said, China aren't here. He'd have said, Putin's not here. I love that, China. Uh, he does it so well. Um, look, what's the point of it all in one way? Because there's no way that India, there's no way China, there's no way Russia are going to play. Do you think I Trump... Do you think Trump would have stayed awake, though? Because Biden, they showed Sleepy a picture Joe. of Sleepy Joe. Fell but, asleep but then, during the... But then, in his defence, which is rare for me, I fall asleep when Prince Charles <laughs> is talking as well. So, one last... I've got 30 seconds left. Jackie asks me, do you think cutting down plane flights would help with climate change? It would help with CO2 emissions, yes. But, you know, unless, you, unless we want to go back and live in caves, what are we supposed to to do. I want us to do more to sequester carbon dioxide and stop calling it a pollutant because without it we can't grow trees, plants, food and all the rest of it.